Hello and welcome back to Ministry to States Bible Study through the book of Daniel. My name is Will Stockdale, Ministry Associate with Ministry to State, and today we are going to be looking at Daniel chapter 7 through 12. This is our final episode, our final part in our Bible study through this book. And it is the second half of the book featuring the prophetic visions. And because we are covering a significantly larger portion of text this week, we are dividing up the prophecies thematically rather than moving verse by verse. The visions and dreams in chapters 7 through 12 feature kingdoms, beasts, periods of weeks, madmen, and a vision of one like the Son of Man. And so hopefully by grouping together these visions into common themes, we would be better able to get a handle on what is occurring in this section. Last week on the Ministry to State podcast, The Will and Rob Show, we released our episode where we interviewed artist Makoto Fujimura. It was an incredible opportunity to ask him questions about art and culture and how the church specifically can think thoughtfully in our engagement with culture. One of the things Mako said was that Christians ought to be futurists. That is, Christians ought to be a people hopeful for and looking towards the future. We ought to work in favor of the future. After listening to the episode, a friend texted me and mentioned how often we Christians are instead fearful of the future. So often we fear change and what might be coming. We like a trust that our God is sovereign over change. But if our God is the God who reveals the future to his people, then as his son told his disciples, we have nothing to fear. I hope our study of these prophetic visions in Daniel provides something of a comfort in these troubling times. Their contents are not warm and cozy, but they are given by a loving God who cares for his people and is working all things for their good. What is more, as frightening as the images may be, our God is greater than them all. I'm reminded of the words by Mr. Beaver and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when he says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. As I mentioned ago, we are going to divide up these six chapters into thematic sections. And following the scholarship of James Hamilton, we will look at three different divisions, the four kingdoms, the 70 weeks, and the one like a son of man. We will now turn to our first section, the four kingdoms. The word apocalyptic has something of a PR problem. Most of the time when that word is used, the images formed in our minds consist of fire, destruction, devastation, and ruin. We think of movies like Apocalypse Now or even the wild Left Behind movies. And while there are certainly intense, weighty, graphic, violent, we could add to the list, images in the apocalyptic literature of the Bible, the word in no way means devastation, calamity, or end times. The word comes from the Greek apocalypto and has more to do with revealing or even unveiling. The word is meant to tune us in to understanding that what we are about to read is a revealing of what is really going on. Apocalyptic literature, in a sense, pulls back the veil and shows us what is happening behind the scenes. This genre is especially helpful in encouraging Christians through reminding us of the true narrative in which we're living. The graphic images and vivid language stick in our brains and challenge us to question by which narrative are we living our lives. 
And so now we will look at the four kingdoms that are discussed in chapters 7, 8, 10, and 11. Scholars have noted the connection between the vision Daniel has in chapter 7 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. If you'll remember, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of a giant statue composed of four different materials. That statue was then struck by a giant stone not cut by human hands and destroyed. These different materials represented different kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Like the four materials, Daniel 7 presents us with four beasts. We are told in order that they are a lion with eagle's wings, a bear raised up on one side with ribs in its mouth, a leopard with four wings and four heads, and lastly a terrifying beast that is not described in full, but we are told that it has iron teeth, ten horns, and pulverizes everything about it. What we mustn't miss is that these four beasts arise out of the sea. The sea that is being stirred up into a violent cauldron by the four winds of the earth. For the people of Israel and in the Old Testament, the seas represented chaos. Genesis 1 verse 2 describes this chaos in Hebrew as the tohu vavohu. That is the phrase where the earth was without form and void. Translator Everett Fox puts this as, quote, when the earth was wild and waste, darkness over the face of ocean, rushing spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. End quote. It was out of this wild and waste that God brought order. And continuing on with this theme, the beasts rising out of turbulent seas represent that they are coming out of chaos to bring chaos. As with the various interpretations of the materials, scholars offer various interpretations of the kingdoms the beasts represent. But it seems most likely that the lion represents Babylon, the bear, Medo-Persia, the leopard, Greece, and the iron teeth, Rome. Something I've always found strange is that the bear is described as laying on its side. Why is that? That doesn't seem like an especially frightening position. A suggested interpretation is that, quote, the raised side refers to the ascendancy of Persia over Media, with the ribs referring to the conquest of this kingdom. End quote. In verse 8, we are told that among the ten horns on the fourth beast, an additional little horn grew up, removed three of the horns, and that, quote, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. End quote. In offering an explanation for the beasts and the little horn, Hamilton writes, quote, They pattern the activities of the wicked powers that have exercised beastly dominion ever since God's vicegerent surrendered that dominion through rebellious sin against the sovereign. The little horn from the fourth kingdom, who will be the final realization of this antichrist pattern, will also seek to cut off the true worship of God replacing that worship of himself and the celebration of his kingdom, end quote. This little horn with its eyes and mouth represents the Antichrist kingdoms that wage war against the church of God. With this in mind, we think of Ephesians 6.12, quote, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, end quote. 
Dostoevsky described man's heart as a battlefield which is fought over. It is a heavy thing to consider, but what is waging war on your heart right now? In line with this question is the caution against missing the main point contained within the beasts and the visions if we only try to figure out which historical kingdoms they represent. Yes, there are certainly rich and specific prophecies conveyed regarding the kingdoms of the ancient world. In chapter 8, Daniel receives a second vision of a ram and a goat. In the Old Testament, rams and goats represented power. The ram did as it pleased and grew great, which represents the Medo-Persian Empire. Then the goat, which grew very great, represents the Greek Empire as led by Alexander the Great. And it went on to overthrow the Medo-Persian Empire. The vision Daniel received in chapter 11 contains a detailed description of Xerxes I and the kingdoms that followed him. Verses 4 and 5 in chapter 11 prophesy that after the death of Alexander the Great, his kingdom would be divided among four rulers, which it was. Verses 5 through 20 cover the reign of the Seleucid kings, ending with the assassination of Seleucus IV in 175 BC. Then verses 21 through 35 tell of the awful reign of Antiochus IV, a truly terrible ruler who set up the abomination that makes desolate. It is believed that this is a reference to Antiochus IV sacrificing a pig, which was considered incredibly unclean by the Jewish people, on the altar in the temple. And while there is no clear shift at verse 36, it seems that it is talking about a king who is truly mighty enough to do whatever he pleases. We could spend hours and hours combing through the specificities of these verses, but if we were to leave our focus on merely the historical figures, we would miss the importance for us today. Indeed, we would have to wonder how these writings could be important to those who wouldn't even live to witness them take place. How can prophecy limited to the future help people suffering today? As with the truth conveyed in the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, the ultimate comfort comes through the reminder that God is the one who allows kingdoms to be set up and the one who allows kingdoms to be destroyed. No matter how awful the reign of Antiochus IV, his reign would end and God would still be on his throne. And here the veil is pulled back. For those who are suffering, there is comfort that God would deliver. For those of us today, we look back and realize that our God has triumphed over the grave. And even though we face trials and tribulations of many kinds, Jesus Christ is still on the throne. We now move on to our second grouping, the 70 weeks. Our focus here will be on Daniel 9.24-27. through 27. Unfortunately, there is no shortage of conjecture concerning what these 70 weeks represent. In one article, Dr. Richard Belchard provides nine different timelines for the 70 weeks. The beginning dates range from 597 B.C. with the writing of Jeremiah 29 to 538 B.C. with the decree of Cyrus. Two of these timelines follow a non-Messianic understanding of the 70 weeks. The remaining seven timelines hold to a Messianic view. Within these Messianic views, there is the dispensational interpretation, which consists of a literal interpretation beginning at either 445 B.C. or 458 B.C., and the rapture which occurs after the 62 weeks, which is either at Christ's entry to Jerusalem in 32 A.D. or beginning of Christ's ministry in 26 A.D. Then there are also the non-dispensational and covenantal views, which debate whether the ending of the 70 weeks concludes at the end of Christ's incarnate ministry on earth 
Paul's conversion in 33 AD, Christ's second coming, or at the end of the New Covenant era. Confused yet? I admit it is very helpful to have these timelines in front of you to look at. But ultimately, it seems that the number 70 held a special symbolic significance. Quote, in the context of the book of Daniel, it is only natural to understand the 70 weeks as another way of describing the period of time between Daniel's own day and the fulfillment of God's promises when he establishes the kingdom that will be neither destroyed nor left to others, end quote. Seventy represents fulfillment and completion. As of now, we may not be able to understand in full what these 70 weeks mean, but we know that God is sovereign over them. They work manifold with the visions to remind Daniel and us today that God is the God of history. He is the Lord of all things and is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And so now we turn to one final section, the vision of one like a son of man. In Daniel 7.13, we read, quote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. End quote. In addition to this vision, there are other angelic, anthropologically described beings in Daniel. We saw this in chapter 3 when Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed that he saw one like a son of the gods walking with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. As we said then, linguistically, it is highly unlikely that the one like a son of the gods in chapter 3 is the same as the son of man in chapter 7. In chapter 6, Daniel announces that God sent his angel to rescue him. But once again, we are not given enough textual linguistic reasons to propose that these are the same beings. It is, however, true that the beings in the two above-mentioned episodes serve the God of heaven, are sent from his presence, and reveal to us the reality that God is working in invisible ways around us. But there's also something unique about this man in 713. And it is my belief that the figure Daniel, described as one like the Son of Man, is the pre-incarnate Christ. However, not everyone is convinced or agrees. Scholar Graham A. Cole writes that this passage, quote, is not clear one way or the other, end quote, that it is referring to Jesus. There are several solid reasons, however, that we should conclude this passage is a reference to Jesus Christ. First, he is described in divine terms. He approaches the Ancient of Days and is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Remember, the passing of man's earthly kingdoms is set in contrast to the kingdom God will bring that will never pass away. Second, Jesus himself connects Daniel 7 with Psalm 110. This introduces us in this study to the fact that Jesus identified himself with Daniel 7 and the Davidic kingship. Both Matthew and Luke's genealogies show that Jesus is a descendant of King David. Third and finally, Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. As Jesus stood before the council, just before he was going to be crucified, he was asked, quote, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, end quote. Not only does Jesus directly identify with the Son of Man, the priest's response reinforces the strength of what Jesus said. The priest tore his garments because Jesus was claiming divine status for himself. 
with these three pieces of evidence, it seems safe to conclude that the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is in fact the pre-incarnate Christ. As a result, we can take comfort from the fact that Jesus is the one who will establish a throne that will never pass away. His is a kingdom that will stand forever. And as we wait in this already not yet period, wherein Christ has come and we wait for him to come again, we can take hope and be amazed at the splendor of his glory. The scene in Daniel 7 is truly splendid. The imagery is vivid and graphic and beautiful and is meant to capture our imaginations. And now I would like to conclude by looking at Daniel 9.23. This verse falls somewhere near the middle of the second section of Daniel. He has just read Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, realizes that the time of deliverance is near and that God's people are not yet ready. He prays and pleads to God for mercy. In response, Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, quote, O Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision, End quote. Gabriel comes to Daniel in his distress, not because he is worthy, strong, smart, handsome, or powerful, but because he is greatly loved by the Father. Throughout all of Daniel's life, he was greatly loved by the Father. It is what sustained him in trials and success, loneliness, and acclaim. I think this verse also helps us better understand the visions in the apocalyptic genre at large. The same God who gave us John 3.16, for God's love the world that he gave his one and only Son, also gave us Daniel 8 in these strong images and, and visions. Yes, there are frightening images and disturbing scenes, but they are not given to us in order to conjure fear. The only appropriate fear is fear of God. No, these visions are from our God and Father who is working to set all things right, who is in charge of history, who loves us, and who is working to establish a kingdom that can never be shaken. As we go from here, let us remember that and rejoice in our great God. Thank you for listening to this series over the book of Daniel. I hope you enjoyed it. If you liked it, please leave us a review on iTunes. And I'm looking forward to being with you for our next series.